The midterm elections are in the rearview mirror, and now it's time to start finding great school board candidates for 2023. Convince the right candidates to run using the Get Elected app for easy-to-understand voter data and analysis, canvassing tools, and more. Visit getelected.org and show them the path to victory. Get elected. Campaign with confidence. Hey, when was the last? So the last time I saw you, we were at the, um, I believe it was the Republican Committee of Allegheny County's event over Christmas. Is that right? So a mutual friend of ours, if I'm not mistaken, actually gave you a fast pass to the front of the line and left me yep. uh, standing there while we were at. Yeah. So so David Gearing, I guarantee you, you're listening to this at some point. So shout out to you, brother. I'll never forget that you took Jason from me and escorted him to the front of the line while I stood there weeping. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious when it happened, to be honest with you. And David and I are friends, so so I'm sure he'll find uh, he'll find that humor. So, Jason, why don't you tell everybody who you are, what you do, why they should care, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. I'm happy to be back. And, and Dave, I, I will uh, take that same place in that line next year, man. Um, came back. Uh, to Pittsburgh right after kind of a career in, in, in DC and national security for about a dozen years. Uh, and then went and joined an organization um, before I moved back called Project Veritas, right? Increasingly in the news as we're seeing things about big tech censorship, um, right? And, and sort of the weaponization of government, very relevant themes that we had picked up as an organization. I moved back to Pittsburgh got involved politically, um, uh, put my name uh, uh, in the hat for the primary, learned a ton there, uh, and really honestly enjoyed just hearing from people. Uh, learned, again, a lot, humbling experience for sure. Uh, and, and what I've been doing since is, you know, a little bit of a focus, again, on national security in terms of some writing and, and things I've worked on. Um, I've taken a position down in Texas where I am uh, working to pay the bills and, um, and then expanded a nonprofit that I founded, um, back in 2021, uh, before the primary called free work and free work is a riff on WeWork, And the idea was right. A lot of that creative space that people have access to that collaborative space for YouTube, uh, videos for podcast studios, for this world of content creation, right. That you and I are a part of right now. I want to spread that out and give people who might not have the opportunity um, to have opportunity for that equipment. So we've done three projects now in the Pittsburgh area, anything from basic donation of equipment to after school programs to uh, in one case over in the North side, we actually outfitted uh, what we called our first YouTube and podcast studio room, the padding on the walls, the lighting. Um, so looking to expand that both in Western Pennsylvania and, and probably uh, a little bit in Texas where, where uh, I've spent some time. You know, it's uh, your experience as a candidate for PA 17, uh, I think is something that particularly in Republican circles in Western Pennsylvania got you a ton of respect uh, within many, many circles. Um, uh, most of the people that I talk to, uh, even Jeremy Schaefer has a lot of really, really positive things to say about your approach to politics, but also the ways in which you believe we could move towards systemic change as a party. So there's a lot to get into. Um, there are three key areas that I kind of want to hit on. You know, one of the things uh, I'm going to start with, with cryptocurrency and 
it's largely because of my own ignorance, right? And one of the things that I've learned is that crypto is one of those weird subjects that people pretend they know enough about to have an educated conversation, but the reality is that they don't. And, and, and I'm, I'll fully admit I'm one of those people. I'm not, uh, up to speed in its totality around, you know, crypto and the implications of its existence and all that sort of thing. So what I'm really hoping to get at with you, at least in this first segment is about, um, the situation with FTX because a lot of people are reading about these things in the news. They're trying to understand at a basic level the implications of what's going on. But the reality is they simply don't have the background to understand it. So here's what I'd like. If you could describe in, in your own opinion um, the state of all things cryptocurrency in the world today, how the situation with FTX has changed things, and what you think is going to ultimately happen to uh Sand Bank been freed. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've been following crypto for about eight or nine years. Uh, I wrote my first paper on it, I think, when I was at Deloitte, maybe 2016, 2017. Um, had done some research previously on the topic for, for a, actually a federal government client. Um, and so I saw some of the early days at these crypto conferences when it was just guys in Pantera t-shirts and they were literally booing as the regulators would come up and give their part of the... Uh, the speeches. Um, so I've seen the ups and downs of the of the industry, right? And and I've seen some other booms and busts, what we call crypto winters. Um, so I'm a believer overall in the utility of, of, of crypto and other fintech tools, right? Financial technology tools. And I'm a believer in the underlying technology of blockchain, I still think is going to end up having industrial applications that people haven't really figured out just yet as we move between the digital and the physical in our world. And as we create cyber physical layers of, of industry, right? That sounds like jargon, but if you think about all of the technologies we have already rolled into our phones and the sensors that our phones have, uh, right? Both for our voices, for our fingers, for our eyes, um, right? The, the tracking uh, and locational technology inherent there, we are blending the cyber and the physical, and I think crypto and blockchain are a part of that. What I also think is that 95% of the products out there in crypto are garbage. And that's <laughs> the sense that people have rightly gotten, right, when they're skeptical. is okay, now I've been hearing about this for four or five years, and every two or three years I hear about a massive scam. Uh, and they're not wrong. Um, the, the, the industry is immature, and it had a lot of people pumpering it pumping exuberant amounts of money into it. And some of us may remember it was that when the bubble that recently burst started to grow was when the federal government decided to hand out unlimited, stim unlimited stimulus checks. And a whole bunch of people were turning around and taking their federal money and buying cryptocurrencies uh, just out of the blue. It was like a typical bubble, very reminiscent to some of the things we saw in the 1920s, though, though at a smaller scale same degree of what we'll call irrational exuberance. Um, what happened, right, with FTX? There are these different companies that try to serve as exchanges. How do you buy crypto? How do you maintain it? How do you track its value vis-a-vis -vis the dollar and other cryptocurrencies? FTX was one of the companies trying to fill that gap. Um, and what really happened is it realized it could take advantage of those discrepancies in valuation 
and quite frankly, a whole bunch of overseas and offshore um, shady financial practices. And, you know, conveniently after the primary, uh, their founder, who is a major Democratic donor, uh, conveniently just after the primary, that bubble burst and and the regulators moved in uh, and and the whole thing went up in smoke. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I've learned about crypto is there is an underlying utility for those products. There's a reason it exists, um, but it is an industry that has a lot to prove. And, and so people out there watching this who are skeptical, your skepticism in the short and medium term is right. But I think long term, there is utility for this technology. You know, it's interesting because uh, the way that most people that I know, at least, would describe the situation with FTX is not unlike um, the way in which people described Enron when that situation was taking place. You know, the, the issue is one of trust. And when you talk about how cryptocurrency and the pace of its adoption, just how quickly valuations went from near nothing to, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a single unit defined however it is we're defining it. We can call it a single Bitcoin, for example, or whatever. There's enough variability there that I think most people don't understand enough about it to safely say, this is a good value relative to the value of a dollar, and this is not a good value. And so there's a lot of mistrust there. And when circumstances like what happened with FTX take place and then connect with that, the connection that Sam Beckman fried had with the Democratic Party, um, it's easy to understand why uh, so many Republicans are really struggling to have any faith in the future of cryptocurrency. Do you have any yeah, thoughts on that? I do. And, and I think there's there's two sides of that, right, which is. There is that Wild West. That's what the industry was. And very often at the beginning of an industry, that's what you're going to have, right? Or you get regulators too involved and it stifles the industry and it goes overseas. Um, but there's a lot of garbage out there. People are rightly skeptical. Um, if you buy cryptocurrencies, it should be a, a small and controlled part of your asset mix. Um, but um, Well, hold on, hold on. So who controls it then? Uh, te technically, nobody. Um, so your ownership can be denoted in a number of different ways, right? So again, that, skept that skepticism uh, uh, absolutely warranted. The systems are not foolproof. But I think what we've learned, right, is most systems aren't. So that, that corruption that we saw endemic in cryptocurrency didn't just exist in uh, Enron. It existed at Goldman Sachs. It existed in all the companies that got bought out by the government in, in uh, the 08, 07, 08 financial crisis, mm -hmm. right? And it exists now in the risk that the American people have taken on behalf of all the other distressed assets, airline company buyouts and things that we've seen. So um, that is not, by the way, Doug, a defense of any individual cryptocurrency or process, but it's more to say, um, you know, each of these areas has an element of, of risk and endemic corruption. Um, what really happened with FTX and what really, right, they took advantage of a system that they saw very plainly, right? If you remember that kind of my example of that is, do you remember when Donald Trump stood on, I think, a debate stage and he said, I know the system is corrupt. 
because every one of these people has come to my door and asked for donations. <laughs> right? Sure. He, yep. he, he, he stood in front of everybody and just called out what we all plainly knew. The guy at FTX basically did the same thing. He said, I know how to donate to the right people to stay on the right side of polite society. And I know the things that I need to announce as initiatives and uh, philanthropic things. And here are our values. And that will prevent anybody from poking too deeply. And even now, as the hammer has come down, that guy probably has tens, if not 100 million offshore. Um, if not through his family members, I heard his parents are, have both magically become huge landowners. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so what I tell what I when I've talked to other Republicans about this, they see it as as more broadly a symptom of the institutional rot that we all see, and quite frankly, the weaponization of our investigative agencies, where where we recognize that there are two different standards of justice. Do you think he'll do time? Maybe a token amount. Yeah. Um, but but I, I I hope I'm wrong. But what I, I have a feeling this is one of those things that gets tied up for years. Uh, and, and even if he does a couple of years, he's he's a guest on podcast two, three years from now uh, and finds his way back into the good graces. A guy like that will hire a PR firm to rehabilitate his image and he'll have friendly left wing hosts uh, uh, giving him slots on TV in a couple of years if he does any time. I think, unfortunately, right, our, as our outrage fades, people know they can play on that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the products of the news cycle, right? I mean, right now it's a hot topic, but at the end of the day, six months from now, most people will forget who he is or what he did. I mean, I, I couldn't rattle off the name of a single executive that was found uh, responsible for the Enron situation. But yeah. the reality, you know, you understand what I mean? Absolutely. And I tell you what, when I was at Veritas, we really dealt with that, too, which was we came up with evidence, raw documentation, insider materials of corruption across a, a number of areas. And, and some of those organizations learned they just had to wait us out. They just had to wait out the news cycle because the Congress was less likely to hold people accountable as they might have in a bipartisan fashion 10, 15 years ago. And they learned they just had to survive uh, the news cycle. And then half the people um, who watch different news channels would never have heard of the story in the first place. Yeah. So it's, you know, obviously that's uh, symptomatic of one of the problems we have with media in a general sense now is that um, uh, these silos exist and depending upon where you get your information uh, you're getting two completely different senses of reality. So there are stories that have been deemed to be hugely important for right wing media outlets that aren't covered in any respect on a lot of mainstream outlets. And it's largely the truth uh, in converse, right? You see it both ways. Um, but you mentioned, uh, you know, Congress's involvement in whether or not anything significant happens as a result of the S- FTX situation. Does that become more likely because we now have a Republican controlled house or not? Only in the sense that they may run additional oversight investigations that could theoretically result in some more documents being turned over. But does that embarrass the Justice Department in anything? I think this Justice Department is past embarrassment. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm truly not convinced it does. Yeah, I would um, agree with you. 
I would agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, you hit on it earlier, too, when you talk about the weaponization of the Justice Department and particularly, you know, organizations like the FBI, where you have this um, continuous situation where they are willing to engage for the betterment of one political party over another or one administration over another. And what that has done, largely to the same degree that this FTX situation has done for crypto, it has eroded public confidence in uh, those organizations' ability to act in a bipartisan nature. Um, it's really disheartening to know that we have a politically motivated justice apparatus because that is a very slippery slope. And I don't know what can be done to really pull us back from it. Yeah. And I want to echo what you just said there. It is extraordinarily risky to have the degree of both power and overreach and what was inevitable, a partisan slant for our federal, our federal justice organs. Um, that breaks down very quickly and in very ugly fashion. Yeah. Um, we are in a scenario now where a significant percentage of American citizens don't trust those organizations um, as fair arbiters of justice. And they're right. And so how do you then cobble together, right, the consensus that underlies our self-government when that has happened? And, 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 and it's so elemental, these, these steps, um, that, that we don't always think of them. But if people don't believe that they are going to be treated equally under a federal, under the, the lens of federal um, law, then their faith in that federal law diminishes our ability to do anything, to your point, is, is there, but also so does the consensus to be ruled under that government. And I think a lot of what we've seen in terms of unrest um, and, and political turmoil um, over the past four, five, six, seven, eight years is Americans essentially saying we are no longer willing to live, we are no longer willing to live under this heavy of a federal thumb. And so we need reform of FBI. We need reform of CIA. Quite frankly, we need reform of the TSA. Um, no longer should, should, no one should feel embarrassed after they get through security. It's, it's, it's time for us to undo that and reset the, the relationship between citizen and state. That's interesting because I'd have, I'd have to look up the stats on it. But, you know, when it comes to the TSA in particular, I don't know that there's a whole lot of metrics that they can point to to suggest that the degree to which people submit to frisking, we'll call it for lack of a better way to phrase it, is generating an overwhelmingly positive result, right? Like the juice has to be worth the squeeze at some point. And after over 20 years, I think we've reached a point where we need to start looking at data and metrics to determine whether or not what is being done is producing a real and positive result. And that's one of the challenges with government in a general sense, right? Because they are almost not required to produce metrics to prove that what they are doing is generating a result. And I, for one, have a real issue with that. Yeah, I read, I don't know if this is an entirely accurate statistic, but what I read was that our federal government spends 
less than one out of every thousand dollars it spends on measuring the effectiveness or the outcomes of their programs, right? <laughs> That's an indictment of us, the American people. Yes, it is. Right? That we're choosing, we choose this government. Um, but when it comes to TSA, right, to your point, government is reactive, it's slow. The reason that we had to um, take off our shoes is because a Muslim guy tried to put an explosive in a shoe and blow up a plane. The reason the water bottles is because a group of British Muslims trained on tactics in, I think, Pakistan or Yemen, tried to use the British version of Gatorade, a bottle, to, to carry an explosive and blow up planes. Those were reasonable adjustments at the time. It's now time to step back and say the risk, that uh, that risk posture is now over. And even if there is still a danger by unwinding some of these security arrangements, the greater risk is this continued imbalance between citizen and state. It's well, already money security. on fire, right? I mean, that's the other side of it. Every government program, and I've said this multiple times on several other podcasts, you know, the government doesn't create anything, right? right. It extracts and redistributes at its basic fundamental function. That's what it does, right? And so when you... When your sole purpose is to extract and redistribute and there's no mechanism for accountability, that creates a very serious problem from my perspective. Absolutely. I'm with you. You know, so yeah, I, I'm curious, though, um, you know, I'm going to change gears here a little bit and talk about the midterm a little bit. So sure. in a general sense, what was your feeling? And I'm, I, I know the answer, but I, I want the listeners to know what you think on this as well. What is your general feeling on the way in which the Republican Party uh, managed the 2022 midterms. Yeah. And let me say, cause you, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. I, I was mm -hmm. lucky enough to be a candidate and I appreciated the things you said. My, my general takeaway from my primary experience was I'm just humbled. There was a lot I, I learned. There's probably a lot more listening I could have done to people who tried to give me advice up front. I think our system here in Western Pennsylvania produced two serious candidates in, in Jeremy Schaefer and Mike Doyle, uh, who I think made articulate cases for Republican and conservative principles. So I, the fact that I was a, an early part of that process, it, I just consider it, I'm just lucky that I was part of all that and got to meet as many people as I did and hear from people. I, I do feel I adjusted my thinking on certain things and I feel just that I learned a ton. Um, the broader Republican Party, right, we have to grapple with a record of failure. And there is no shortcoming there. Not just our failure um, um, in the past few election cycles, but the fact that the, the, the case for limited government essentially hangs by a threat. Um, the, the federal government is, 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 is behaving in an anti-constitutional uh, um, uh, way in the, at this point, right? So we're, we're so dramatically divorced and the uphill is so steep that it is easy to despair. Um, and, and obviously we have to reject that. When I talked to a lot of people, you know, at that Christmas party and in the weeks before, I got a lot of texts the night, night of the election. Um, you know, the only answer I had was, was, was nothing particularly um, cohesive. It was simply to say, I'm not giving up on Pennsylvania. I have a feeling you're not either. Yeah. So the question is, you know, to your point, what lessons do we draw in terms of how Republicans handled it? I think that too often, and this is national, by the way, we let Democrats continue to frame the issues. 
Um, for example, we talk about abortion, right? And there was a lot after the election, especially with the PA exit polls. We focused too much on abortion. We alienated voters, you know, especially there were candidates who talked about a federal ban on abortion. Did that alienate people? And, and my questions in response to that are twofold. Well, what was our position supposed to be? And two was the Democrats were also pushing for a national policy on abortion. Not only have they since 1973, but they were pushing it in this midterm. What they said is if you elect us, we will push for national access. So in my opinion, what Republicans didn't necessarily do is represent the right or the wrong thing. They let Democrats and the mainstream media who are the same thing they are, right? And really the media leads the the party in a lot of ways. Um, They let them frame the issues. This election should have been about inflation, inflation, and inflation. People are worse off. Their lives are worse. The fact that we couldn't win that narrative battle, the fact that it wasn't cohesive, the fact that the National Party didn't invest in all the candidates that it should have, uh, uh, both McConnell and, and some of the other national groups, is, uh, you know, Democrats fall in line. AOC, for as outrageous as she is, she does what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer tell her to do, right? Republicans were a little bit more free-spirited, and and we're finding that that lack of discipline is biting us. Yeah, but you know what? We did have pockets of success, right? I mean, Florida, in my opinion, has become the preeminent example of the way in which the Republican Party needs to approach improvement, uh, from an infrastructure standpoint, what Ron DeSantis has done down there is incredible. But more than that, the apparatus around him has been fine-tuned uh, to turn what has historically, at least for the past 20 years, been a purple state into a bright red beacon in this country. And I'm wondering if there are any specific lessons, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania, where we're from, um, are there any particular lessons that we can draw from that? Yeah, I, I think there are several, right? Um, so DeSantis leans into the fight, but that would be too easy a point to make. He leans into the fight, but he also chooses them wisely. When he goes out and gives a speech about, say, woke education or something like that, he already knows that's a winner. He has a press secretary who goes out there and does all the first elbow. So he's aggressive, but he's limiting the damage that he's taking. Uh, he never stopped fundraising. Uh, I think DeSantis had $130 million for a gubernatorial race that cost him much, much less than that. Um, we can't stop doing that. It is an unfortunate reality that money is a part of politics. But unless you're going to force the airwaves to give you free advertising, that's just how it's going to be. He continued to fundraise. But, but most importantly, right beyond all these things, is Ron DeSantis made a bet on applying conservative values and seeing them through in terms of competence. And that used to always be our party's advantage. They, the American people said, all right, who do you trust on the budget? Republicans. Who do you trust on national security? Republicans. And maybe there are some other items, right, where they trust Democrats, essentially when it came to giving away uh, 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 certain things. Um, That is what I think DeSantis is rebuilding is an element of trust. Uh, We said we're going to do a thing. We did the thing. Here's the result. Right. And, and, And what did that do? That magnet drew people in. In Pennsylvania, what we're going to have to figure out is how do we demonstrate that competence um, when we don't have as many layers of power to exercise, right? Our uphill 
is now so significant in Pennsylvania, uh, a state that population-wise is appear- apparently comfortable with stagnation, right? Two major cities that, that similarly population-wise aren't growing as, uh, uh, anywhere near they should, um, I think have stopped declining, um, but, but have essentially, how do we paint a vision that says, here's what we could have, um, both economically, um, you know, in terms of employment outcomes, in terms of development, and in terms of the, the freedom that I think people ultimately want. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, what they did in Florida was a masterclass in the way in which we should approach gubernatorial politics. And, you know, the, ne- the next point I want to make is, is not something that is hugely popular in some circles, but at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge where our mistakes were. And the, the reality is that selecting uh, Doug Mastriano, who I like a whole lot, um, was a decision that ended up costing a whole lot of down ballot candidates, including Jeremy Shaver here in PA 17, but it, other, uh, you know, congressional candidates across the state. And th- there's, I don't, th- that's not his fault. You know, he was nominated. He, he pushed the envelope from, uh, his campaign perspective. He did the absolute best job he could. And I think he did a tremendous job. But the reality is that, you know, to your point, money talks. And he did not have the financial backing uh, that uh, certainly he didn't have the financial backing that Josh Shapiro had. Um, and I think that's largely because when the Mitch McConnells of the world looked at his circumstances and the realities of his campaign and the odds against him, they didn't want to burn money on someone they didn't think had a chance. And subsequently, we lost, um, you know, Dr. Oz wound up losing to Fetterman. Uh, Jeremy Schaefer wound up losing to, to, to his competition. You know, the challenge at the end of the day is that who we pick for the top of the ticket matters, and it matters a whole lot. And so one of the things I think about is, you know, going back to the primary that you ran in, you know, how many options were on that primary ticket for governor? I think it was six, maybe seven. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. And it was a lot more for a lot longer. And then there was some of that late narrowing. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, a little bit more party discipline would have resulted in a two or three man race. But at the end of the day, we as a party need to think more intelligently about not just which candidate aligns with our beliefs, but which candidate can actually win. Because if we don't nominate a candidate who can win, we get nothing. And that's kind of the situation we found ourselves in in Pennsylvania because we've refused to embrace moderatism, if that is a word. I might have just made that up. Uh, if I did, I'll coin it and, you know, put a copyright behind it. But nevertheless, our goal needs to be to reach more people. One of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, Republicans need to win more elections. And one of the key ways we need to do that is getting better at talking to people who aren't Republicans, because we need to in order for us to be successful moving forward. Does that make sense? It does. And, and, you know, that was to me the great, um, the great uh, falsehood of John Fetterman is that he talks a working class, working man's thing. And we all know that that's right, a costume that he wears. Uh, and, and it's something that I think, 
right? I believe that the Republican Party is turning into the working class party. And and the Democratic Party at this point is now a a, a, a deal, a truce, a, a, a symbiotic relationship between our upper uh, elite classes, the people who, who, who shape uh, culture, right, and, and live in four or five cities, and then uh, uh, a, an underclass that those people want dependent on. And everybody else is a natural Republican right now. Uh, and so when you have a guy like John Fetterman, I still don't think Amer- uh, I still don't think Pennsylvania understands who they elected. Uh, I think he's probably the most radical senator of either party. Uh, the things he's talked about in terms of a mini nuke or, or elimination of the filibuster, and then some of the policies that he's advocated for are are truly radical in a way that I'm I'm unsettled by. And you should be. Um, you sh- you should be unsettled by it. And I think the reason that we supported, uh, you know, in aggregate, obviously, we supported a candidate that has those beliefs is because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what a functional federal government looks like in this country in particular, right? Uh, a lot of time was spent trying to create what amounts to a seized engine at the federal level. It is not designed to move quickly. But then we get addicted to these ideas around change. We want change. We want to elect uh, change agents who are going to quickly enact policies that reflect my worldview. But the system is directly designed to conflict with that desire. The problem is when you elect someone like Fetterman, who has very clearly an intent on removing some of those roadblocks, what people don't understand is that those roadblocks aren't temporarily removed. They are permanently removed by policy. And that makes that seized engine move just a little bit faster. And a federal system that moves and enacts policy very quickly will start to react to the whims of the particularly the executive branch of the government. And so what you end, what do you, what do you have when a, an executive leader can enact policies quickly based exclusively either on their worldview or the worldview of people that put them into power? That's a dictatorship. Yep. And, and let me make a further point here because this is so key is those process and other, um, breaks that we have on the system. I've heard a fair argument from other people that say the grid, quote unquote, gridlock, which they think is bad, um, which I think is just a natural response to the fact that we're actually deeply divided on a lot of these issues, quite frankly, as a country. But they say, no, no, the gridlock is what's destabilizing. Look at what's happening around the country, how upset people are. They're at each other's throats. And what I say is, no, no. Imagine what it would be like without that gridlock. So, for example, if we make things easier to pass through the Senate, and, and, and there are people on the left who will point to polls, well, actually, 65% of people believe in this, so we should be able to get it through. And my, and my point is, no, what the Senate requires is both a depth and a breadth of national consensus. Both of those things are required to move the needle significantly at the federal level. To undo that and to make these moves absent, that deep and broad 
national consensus is to invite a way higher degree of instability. And again, quite frankly, I think the government would put itself on a path to losing legitimacy. That's what I'm, that's the theme I keep coming back to is we don't understand how close we are to, um, uh, people essentially saying, I'm not going to be ruled under this any, any longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, uh, the way I see it is this, the people who, particularly in the House, they represent 331-odd million people. The chances of those 435, I believe is the number, I could be wrong, uh, but the chances of those people coming to a quorum on anything is near zero, right? But it was designed to be that way. You will never elect a U.S. Con- a freshman U.S. congressman who's going to go to Capitol Hill and exact whatever campaign promises that they made, right? The system is not designed to do that. You're going to show up, you're going to smile, and you're pretty much going to do what you're told. And that's fine. The system was designed to do that. But we, what happens once in a while is you run into the situation like what happened with Kevin McCarthy last week, right? It took, I think, 18, maybe 16 votes uh, for him to become speaker, something that I believed at least was an inevitability. Like we knew he was going to become speaker, but we had these 20 or so representatives that were, you know, creating a challenge for their own reasons. And I don't fault them for that. But what I found truly extraordinary at least in some cases, was the degree of concern over this issue. The reality is, who cares how long it takes the House of Representatives to pick its next speaker? Did anything monumental happen or not happen as a result of that indecisiveness? No. What it did was it highlighted in very specific terms the power that a small group of people can have, right? But their inability to actually get change installed. We all knew that Kevin McCarthy was going to be speaker. That was never brought into question. Now, what he provided in terms of concessions to get the votes that he needed, that's a separate issue. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, his his speakership was a virtual certainty. And those that were elected to shake the cage a little bit were able to do so. Was that your estimation? Yeah. And, and so and that, that last part you made is, is where I keyed in. My takeaway was, and some of those people were freshmen, they enacted some of the more significant rule changes in a decade or so in, a, in 48 hours of, to your point, everybody gnashing their teeth and rending there. But I tell you what, if you said, okay, 48 hours, 72 hours of drama for those pretty significant rule changes, maybe a good object lesson in what can happen and, and What's interesting is is the way that I think about this more broadly, to your point, hard to do with a small amount of people who maybe don't even have a mandate for that. But but on the other side is we are, I think, waiting sometimes for there's going to be this broad, huge election, wave election. America's going to come to its senses and say, even our wave elections are usually wiped out within two to four years. Right. So so so. Our, what the American people are often asking for is, is new branding on relatively minor change, right? Um, they, they don't like those wild swings, even when we're very, very fed up, as, as I think we rightfully are now. Um, but what I liked about what I saw was 
if that clarion call moment isn't coming, at some point, reform and sanity is going to be just enough stubborn, stubborn people acting as just enough of a holdout that they can eventually start to bend that curve. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is right. One of the frustrating but, but real, real things about self-government is I know the things that I believe and I want to see them enacted right now. And I know that the, the, the uphill battle is, is such that what you really can hope for often is incremental change. And so I struggle with that myself, which is, do you want to be involved in implementing incremental change when you believe that change needs to be systemic and whole? Um, and I think, I think to your point, that is kind of some of that soul searching that, that a lot of Republicans are doing right now. Yeah, I think that's the big difference between the candidates and the people that support them, right? I mean, the people that support them would like to see their worldviews enacted in policy as quickly as possible. But the reality of the situation is that the, the cards are stacked against them. You know, you're never going to elect a single candidate who's going to be the change agent that you want them to be. The closest uh, contradiction to that would be someone like Donald Trump. And, you know, he gets elected and an enormous number of the U.S. electorate gets cold water splashed on him. And they're terrified because they don't know what to expect. You elected Joe Biden, for example. We pretty much know what to expect. Um, It'll be fascinating to see how 2024 shakes out. I mean, I know what I want to happen. I'm not going to say it now. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it will wind up being an indictment on the things that happened in 2022 and whether or not the Republican Party is able to make enough adjustments um, to really see a ton of success that in that presidential election. Because from my perspective, you know, we there are lessons that need to be learned. There's no question about that. But I don't think the people who needed to learn them have gotten the full picture just yet. And I think that the losses that we experienced in 2022 are going to create the opportunity to do that. Yeah, you know, what I think about, you mentioned right at the beginning uh, there, the the, re- the outreach, do the, pe- the, the things that we want, is there a chance of them being enacted, right? Because I, I am less interested in compromise. I believe the 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 the... the the picture is so stark um, that, that we got to take increasingly big bets. I, I am a believer in that, though I recognize change is often incremental. But the question is, can we win the argument before we win the elections? And and the losses that we've felt in 2022 are, are so historic. I've had people say, well, that's not technically true. There are other first-term presidents who have been able to notch wins in their first term. But like, for instance, when George W. Bush did that, it's because it was a few months. It wasn't long after 9-11. Um, and there tend to be these other historical headwinds. Um, but for an unpopular president with the dramatic economic failure that Joe Biden has not just presided over, but I believe caused in many ways, for, for, for Republicans to lose the way that we did, we have to have some real conversations. How can we win the argument? How do I convince, um, you know, a lot of those same suburban folks, how do I give them permission to vote Republican again? Um, And how do we appeal to the issues that they're interested in, in the terminology that they are using? And not just the terminology that we pick up from the podcasts and the Twitter personalities that we, um, you know, that we sometimes follow 
probably too close to it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that we've gotten to a point and, um, you know, not not to plug it here, but, you know, I, I'm in the process of writing this book. It comes out next month. And one of the key themes is this idea that uh, the polarization that we're experiencing is largely as a, a result of social media, because what ends up happening is we spend way too much time swimming in familiarity. And so what happens in those instances is that we become overly sensitive to ideas that conflict with our own worldviews. And that's largely responsible for this shout, this perpetual shouting match that we're experiencing. But the reality is that that shouting match is only taking place between very small segments of both parties. The reality is that 60, 65% of the electorate is still very moderate. They don't think about politics as often as you and I do. These are people that you go to work, they take care of their kids, they engage with their friends, and they don't spend as much time thinking about these things as we might be led to believe. And so one of the things we need to get better at is the art of conversation, right? I hope that every single person that comes on my podcast, for example, uh, comes away with the people who have listened, having a better understanding of who they are as people, right? And because I think it's important to get back to that and to allow the people who are making the news to tell you firsthand what they really think about things. Because until we get back to that reality, as opposed to allowing an algorithm within some sort of social media platform to do that for us, we're going to be at a significant disadvantage in terms of resonating with the moderates that are ultimately going to be responsible for us winning or losing elections. Yeah, I think I think there's a phrase that's that's uh, Twitter is not real life, right? And so I I, I had months ago I had uh, put something on Twitter, and I know I got to do more on Facebook, and that's where a lot of folks are, particularly in Western Pennsylvania. But I go mm-hmm. on Twitter, and um, I had something that got I don't know twenty or twenty five thousand views, whatever it was. That that is twenty to twenty five thousand people spread across a few major cities with a very specific audience and a, like nobody in my actual life had any clue that happened. Right. And I, so, so that was a good reminder that these debates that we sometimes are having are, are there, but, but to your point about right. Podcasting as, as a, as a, as a medium, I think that what I'm thrilled by is the fact that there is an audience because people are ready for, okay, Hey, let's have unfiltered, unpolished conversations um, right. And, and, and we can talk about, Hey, here's the things that we know a lot about. Here's us conjecturing about some things. Here's what I we're good at. Here's what we're bad at. That stuff's just ultimately more, more interesting. And I will then steal also, let me plug again, free work, uh, that nonprofit in Pittsburgh. If, if, if anybody has now, again, this is, I'm a not, this is a nonprofit, but I'm not asking for money. What I'm asking for is if you know of an after school program that might want equipment, or if you know of a creative youth in the greater Pittsburgh area who you think would commit themselves to content creation, who wants to have these types of conversations or foster these conversations amongst their friends, that's who we're here to help. And so reach out to me, find me on Twitter, send me an email, um, and we'll have those conversations. Because just like we're talking, Doug, you know, I know that there's a generation who don't remember what it was like before social media. And don't remember what it was like when everything wasn't just sound bites and, and, and outrage. And so what I want to do is, is, is open up that aperture of creativity amongst uh, uh, folks who are younger than us. Cause, 
at some point it's going to be their turn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I I hear from young people is they say, well, we're ruled by a, a, what's that phrase? Gerontocracy, right? (laughs) Biden's this old and Trump's this old and Hillary's this old. And and what I tell them is then take it, stop, stop complaining. Um, If, if, if you don't want those people to be in power, they're fighting the battle. They're winning. They're appealing to voters. It's time for other generations to, to, to do that um, and, and to respect those folks who have, who have fought the battles, respect their elders, but say, okay, it's time for, it's time for our time in the sun. And, and that's what's interesting, right, about what we're seeing in Florida and what we're seeing in some other states is some of this younger leadership is starting to now get real national experience. And I think that that, that could be compelling. Yeah, I, I agree completely. The only reservation I have is that, you know, most of the people under 25 will say that I know, um, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but talking and doing are two totally different things. Yep. And doing requires effort, but it also requires risk. And I, uh, I believe, and, you know, I'm certainly open to being criticized for this opinion, but I believe that we're raising the most risk averse generation uh, in, in history. And that is a very dangerous place to be because you don't get anywhere without taking risks. Yeah, and one of, one of the great moments in in Steelers history, and, and this didn't take place on a football field, is is when James Harrison was at one of his son's football games, and they gave him a participation trophy, and he turned around and made him hand it back in, and give it back to the uh, you know the awards table and say, "We don't accept these here." I'm with you, and and what's what, what's interesting to me because I you know sort of the age that I'm at now is I have friends who complain about their kids are, are being raised that way. And, and what I tell them is they're your kids or people who are a little bit older than me. They complain about participation trophies. I say, you were the adults who invented them. It, it isn't the children. And so what, what I want to figure out is how did, to your point, how did we make this cultural shift? And, and typically what happens, even if kids are soft, they meet the real world and the real world teaches them those lessons, maybe more painfully, uh, um, and with more bruises than it might have otherwise, right? Yeah. So how do we get back to that? So to your point that this young generation goes outside, gets out of the basement, um, and, and we've got to figure that out. The other thing that I've seen amongst young people is a, a, a serious apathy, right? They, these are, these are, are, are young adults or maybe people who started their careers in the shadow of the 2008 financial crisis, and they have an entirely different outlook. Right. They saw banks get bailed out and then they saw uh, right, a number of these financial crises, um, um, the failure of different wars. The, they have a very different conception of, of America because they hadn't necessarily had those shared national successes or touchstones. And what I'm trying to figure out is, well, how do we how do we inspire that in them and or are we headed towards some unfortunately tougher moments, both domestically and internationally, where those lessons will get learned one way or the other. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read uh, Atlas Shrugged cover to cover. So that's a read for sure. It's kind of like the war and peace of, yep. um, you know, political dystopia. Right. But uh, a, a good friend of mine turned me on to this book maybe three months ago, and I was embarrassed to say at the time that I'd never heard of it. But I tore through all 1,400 pages of it in a matter of two months because I thought that it was so 
topically relevant for what's going on in in our country today. And when you look at the themes of the book through the lens of of the youth and the way that they see the world, the reality is that they feel entitled, right? They are entitled to transportation. They are entitled to a job. They are entitled to a lot of the things that previous generations kind of looked at as things that they needed to work toward and apply effort to um, if they had any hope of actually achieving those things. So the, 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 the point is that the current generation of kids, 18 to 25, call it, uh, they believe that the reward comes before the effort. And that puts us in a really tricky situation. If you recall in the book, you know, uh, John Galt was the destroyer and he was uh, tasked uh, or his mission in life was to create the collapse of the environment that enables people who are entitled, you know, in a nutshell. And sorry, but if I spoiled that for anybody, it's a 70 year old book get on board with it. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's largely thematic of what we're experiencing. And I just don't know what can be done to pull that generation out of it, short of some very, very cold water being dumped on their heads. Yeah. And I have two thoughts as related to that too, that, that where we can help. One of those is the idea of maintaining a culture of independence uh, um, distinct from a government is going to increasingly hard to maintain that in a state monopoly on public ed- on, on education. Those things are not going to coexist cleanly over a long enough period of time. Uh, the second is, right, we have to call out the fact that there are individuals in our society who are openly, deliberately trying to undermine those very values, teaching them, you know, especially on the left, saying the system is rigged, hard work is not there, the billionaires or the rich are your enemy, right? And, and, if, if it was a politician on the other side, right, there'd be a, a lineup of mainstream media folks saying Republicans throw red meat to their base, right? They describe it in that term. And yet when Democrats do that, when they, when they vilify, when they try to convince kids that the American dream, the American way of life is, 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 is negative, is forfeit, or, or try to teach them a lot of the kind of crazy social things we've seen take place in schools, we have to defend that. And that is itself a path to understanding these people want to teach your children very specific things. It is your job as a parent to prevent that from happening. And that might mean what you do at home and the lessons you teach at home. It might mean getting involved in public policy and fighting that battle at a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that it's it's easy to make the case, particularly if you have the right data in front of you that, you know, the left has had a monopoly on education uh, for 30 years. And, you know, it's funny, I was in a conversation earlier with somebody where we were talking about the stranglehold that the teachers unions have on, you know, the political cycles, right? Because they are the single biggest donors yep. to uh, school board candidates, you know, nationally. And so essentially they are funding the campaigns of the people that are supposed to be negotiating against them on our, the taxpayer's behalf. And, you know, I've said that multiple times. I know I've said it to you a couple of times, but at the end of it, it bears repeating because we need to understand 
A, who we are nominating for important roles that uh, have to do with the spending of taxpayer dollars and who is ultimately funding the campaigns of the individuals that they need uh, that are ultimately going to be negotiating against, right? Like it's just, it's a conflict of interest. It's the most clear cut thing in the world, in my opinion. And yet we completely glaze over it because we don't want to have to deal with the consequences of that realization. Does that make sense? Yeah, if you described what what that dynamic was, that recycled money, literally out of the public trough back in, out of the public trough back in, um, in, in such a, in, in a direct quid pro quo, if you described that and changed the names and the faces and, and, and said it's happening somewhere else, the word that everybody would come back to is corruption. It's explicit corruption. Um, the, the, you know, you mentioned the stranglehold in education. So, so the, the primary education system, the higher education system, uh, uh, Hollywood and the media. The left has institutional control that they fought decades to, to, to win. What we're seeing now, when we talk about the youth the way they are, is the fruit of that victories, the victories that the left has won. Um, they are exerting that control for, for a reason and with outcomes. We are now seeing those. And so what I, what I find that we do too much, right, when, sometimes when I talk to other folks on the right, is we chase the ball over here, then we chase the ball over here, and yet the left is, 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 they'll go from this social issue to that one to that one, right? Um, I'll, give a, I'll give a less controversial example. Um, you know, they, years ago, they were fighting the battle over what kind of light bulbs we could have in our homes and, 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 and office buildings, right? And now, yep. what is it? Gas stoves is now the thing, the, the political issue of the week. Yep. They're choosing all those battles. And then a bunch of right wing people say we play defense and we talk about how hard we fought, but it's us in reaction to what they're doing. Yes. They're driving the, the cultural engagement. They're driving the narrative, not the right. Yep. hundred percent. Correct. It's, it's, we need to get off of defense and start playing a little bit of offense. The challenge Republicans have in a general sense is, you know, we are largely trying to preserve, right? So defense is our natural position. Right. right, because we are trying to defend what is currently reality. Um, it's the change agents that are constantly trying to shift our culture in a direction that we don't like. So again, our natural position is defense, but that doesn't mean we always have to take a defensive stance. We know what's coming. These people are not that smart. Right. So we need to get smarter about anticipating uh, the moves that are coming at us and creating strategies to defend in accordance with those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you can, and it's predictable, right? I always, I, I always say you can tell the moves that they're teeing up the left to your point. They're not that smart. They tell you what they're going to do. Yep. They telegraph um, and, all the time. Exactly. And I, and I say, so look for what they're telegraphing. And then two, I say, when they preach revolution, believe them. The, the, the shiny face of the national democratic party it is it is a, a, a cover for the serious radical ideas that have become mainstream that that even Barack Obama would have barely bought into X amount of years ago, right? But but so let's understand that. Let's telegraph it. Let's see as they're setting up narratives. Um, call those out. But but secondly, right to your point, our, our natural thing is to preserve. So where do we play offense? Well, what we can do is we can look at the areas of stasis and rot that Democrat outcomes have led to so and then attack those status quo. so for example um i believe that not wanting 
um, certain types of economic reform and educational reform in the inner cities is not just a bad idea. Rejecting that reform at this point is maybe racist, is maybe anti-egalitarian. We have 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years of data that the approaches that they want aren't working. The outcomes aren't there. We have a large enough sample size now. And so if our friends on the left are supposedly part of what they call right the reality-based community, let's ask them why they would still defend that, that, that explicitly failed reality, right? The data is in. So I think there's a number of areas where Republicans can both attack the sclerosis that's there, but also drive that narrative with moral, passionate language. I couldn't agree more, brother. All right. I've taken up way too much of your time. You have been absolutely fantastic as usual. I'm going to wrap it up. Um, tell, uh, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you if they need to. Yeah. Hey, uh, folks that are watching, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Jason Kilmeyer. I'm not selling. I'm not promoting anything. Same, same with the nonprofits free work. Um, but that's where you can reach me. Or just for those who have my email, just shoot me an email. It's literally jason.kilmeyer.gmail.com. I'm easy to reach. I want to hear what you have to say. I like feedback. I mistakenly, I always read the comment section when I post stuff um, because, you know, you, you don't always get the best, the, the nicest comments from folks online. But the reality is I also learn a lot and I engage with what people send me. Um, and so I'm around and, and I want to hear what people think. It's good to see you, man. Happy Thanks we're able me. to do this. All right. Absolutely. We'll talk soon.